From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Immigrant communities in Colorado are braced for the possibility of mass deportations of those illegally in the country. My mom and extended family had a nervous breakdown, pretty much. So far, there have been no such nationwide roundups. Perspective today on why, then how mosquitoes have shaped human history. This universal tiny animal the size and weight of a grapeseed is punched way above her weight class. But why do they target some of us more than others? 85% of what makes you as an individual appetizing to mosquitoes is pre-wired in your genetic circuit board, unfortunately. Plus, Ari Shapiro is coming to Red Rocks not to host All Things Considered, but to sing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Twice recently, President Trump has threatened mass deportations of people in the country illegally. Such raids have yet to occur. Paulina Martinez of Denver came to the U.S. with her mother when she was 11. They crossed the border illegally from Mexico. She says the threat of a roundup stresses her relatives. My mom and extended family initially had a nervous breakdown, pretty much. You know, saying that they couldn't go to the store. You know, they they probably wouldn't be leaving their house because they, you know, you hear all these things and he's threatening to come after each and every one of us. But Martinez, who has an open immigration case after ICE arrested her a few years ago, reacts differently herself to Trump's announcements. I just see it as empty threats. It's just very coincidental to me that he's doing so right when there's a presidential election coming up. It's obvious, or at least I feel like it would be almost impossible to do to deport millions of us. It just wouldn't be cost-effective. I honestly don't feel too threatened. Of course, I'm being cautious, and I will keep my eyes open for any signs, but for the time being, I think it's more of the same. Let's get some perspective on how the immigrant community, namely those who are undocumented, are preparing, perhaps changing their routines. Hans Meyer is a leading immigration attorney in Denver. He also represents Martinez in her ongoing case. And Hans, I wonder what advice you give uh, clients right now who are in the country illegally. Is that advice any different in light of the recent threats? Uh, you know, actually, I don't think the advice is a lot different. I really think that that Trump's announcement, I mean, it, it's meant to serve three purposes, right? Um, sort of mobilize his base for re-election um, and identify, you know, what local communities will actually stand up against him. But more importantly than anything, it's just to sort of sow confusion and panic. And really, our advice to our clients, as well as to people in the immigrant community, is that this is much more a rhetorical battle than it is, um, you know, an actual announcement of enforcement. Now, that's not to say that there won't be enforcement, but I do think this needs to be a majored response. Do you think, then, that fears are overblown? I do. Um, You know, that's a primary purpose, I think, of the administration, is to create that sense of panic. Because obviously, if you can do that, the confusion and the panic benefits an anti-immigrant agenda. And honestly, the issues of enforcement, the sort of tools of enforcement, they've been weaponized already for the last 29 months. So this is not necessarily a new paradigm that we're entering. 
Um, I do think that's possible we could see enforcement operations, but I think the sort of panic that has seemed to um, initially follow Trump's announcements, I do think it's overblown. You talk about Trump mobilizing his base. Differently put, it could be that he is fulfilling promises that he made uh, when he ran for election, which was uh, very much focused on immigration. You say sowing confusion and panic. Uh, Might this be a way, though, to get people to self-deport, I think is the term that's been used. Absolutely. That is part of the part of the strategy, because if, you know, if people are afraid, if people don't feel a sense of confidence, um, they make maybe decisions out of uh, impulse. And as absolutely one of the primary purposes of making this type of announcement is now um, he can sit back and watch how communities respond. We hit, we haven't even yet seen anything, but we've seen a lot of people uh, panic and freak out, uh, understandably so. The more important thing is what can we do locally in communities um, to strengthen Um, our resistance against those operations and to make sure immigrant communities know that they have a safe place. I want to have you respond to the following thought. The U.S. has a right to ship people out of the country who are not here legally at whatever scale and whenever it pleases. Um, Well, uh, they do have that right, but people in those situations also have the right to due process of law. And we have an existing immigration law that provides due process. And in many ways, there's a lot of opportunities that people have under current immigration law to either apply for status or keep their status or ask an immigration court or an immigration judge for what's called relief from removal or the ability to obtain their status. So um, while I agree that the U.S. does have the right to enforce its immigration laws, um, also, you know, as a, as a country of laws, um, people uh, in the immigrant community have a right to avail themselves of the protection of law. You talk about this being a country of laws, and yet earlier you said that you want a resistance. Isn't a resistance necessarily a flouting of laws? I don't see it that way. I think the resistance that I see is uh, a commitment to due process, um, a repudiation of mass roundups, or at least the statement about mass roundups, um, and a recommitment to people having the opportunity to avail themselves of immigration law, family-based applications, relief in immigration court. There's a lot of opportunities people have uh, to obtain status. You know, this leads to the sort of larger global question of what do we do um, as a country uh, with a population of people who've lived here for a very long period of time um, and who are operating under a pretty antiquated set of immigration laws. And that's really the operative question here um, that I think is is begs for the long-term solution. At a naturalization ceremony in the Oval Office in January, the president talked about the importance of following the proper channels. It was a beautiful ceremony and a moving reminder of our nation's proud history of welcoming illegal immigrants from all over the world into our national family. The argument is often made that crossing the border illegally undermines those who wait in line. We asked your client, Paulina Martinez, about that. Again, she was brought here by her parents when she was 11. It wasn't like I didn't try. There's just, as far as I know, there weren't any grounds for me to apply for citizenship, from here at least. I would have had to leave my family. And ultimately, it also comes down to, you know, this is my home. You know, I grew up here. I don't remember what Mexico is like. 
I think I can speak for most of us. We're just human beings like everybody else, and we're trying to do the right thing for the most part, follow the rules, and we do make mistakes. But we're here because we, and not only because of the opportunities, but throughout that time that we spend here, we learn to love this country, and we'd like to be given an opportunity to give back in any way possible. We have just about a minute, Hans. What would you add? Well, I think Pauline is completely right, and her case really sort of highlights the complexity of this issue. You know, she came to the country when she was 11, two decades ago. Um, she had very little agency in that decision, um, but she grew up here. Uh, she's built roots here. She works here. She pays taxes here. She has two children here, um, and she's a productive member of our community. We, we do have a set of laws, and I agree that, you know, people need to follow those laws. But at the same time, our immigration laws also provide opportunities for people like Paulina to seek to obtain status. She was right that uh, our current immigration laws don't reflect the realities of what a lot of people face. And so for that reason, our immigration laws need updated to provide for things like immigration reform uh, or a pathway to residency or citizenship. Uh, You know, the perfect example is our population of um, DACA folks. And I think that's an example of... Um, the type of conversation we need to actually be having, which is how do we update those immigration laws so that we have something that both reflects what our country needs and reflects the humanity of the people who live in our country. Hans Meyer, Denver immigration attorney. We also heard from Paulina Martinez, who crossed illegally into the United States as a child with her mother more than 20 years ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. What's the deadliest predator humans face? Sharks, maybe? Lions? Nope, they're not even in the top 10. Or maybe you thought this was a trick question, that other people are the deadliest predators. Also not the case. The answer is the mosquito, which has killed an estimated 52 billion people over time. Historian Tim Weingard writes about this in his new book, The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Weingart is a professor at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. And Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell me about your last mosquito bite. My last mosquito bite? Well, I'm from Canada, actually, and I was home in May. And uh, that is about just when they start coming out back home. So there was quite a few, not just one, quite a few mosquito bites. I don't actually get bitten quite as much as other people do, thankfully. And there's various reasons for why they like some more than others. And that has to do with blood type. Uh, They prefer type O over A and B. um, And I'm blood type B. People who have higher levels of certain chemicals in and on their skin and bacteria as well, including lactic acid. That's an aphrodisiac for mosquitoes. How much carbon dioxide people uh, respire is also an aphrodisiac. So about 85% of what makes you as an individual appetizing to mosquitoes is pre-wired in your genetic circuit board, unfortunately. My goodness. Now, is bite an accurate word? We talk about mosquito bites. Do you think that captures it well? It's actually an intricate feeding ritual for the females, only females bite. There's six, essentially, (laughs) needles, if you will, that she uses. Two that kind of like one of those electric carving knives, a saw back and forth. Yeah. Two of those saw into your skin. 
Two more act as retractors, essentially, and hold it open. A fifth, which is the straw, essentially. And then a sixth pumps in saliva, which contains the anticoagulant to make it easier to get the blood, which causes an allergic reaction as well, which is the itchiness and and some minor swelling. But also through the saliva tube comes over 15 deadly diseases that she bestows upon humans, including obviously malaria, yellow fever, which are the two most deadly diseases she transmits, but also West Nile, Zika. And what should we be most concerned about in Colorado? I gather it's West Nile? In Colorado, yes, it's West Nile is pervasive in Colorado and some Milder or more benign cousins of West Nile, Jamestown Canyon virus, which was named after Jamestown, Colorado, actually. The snowshoe hare virus, these are relatively new mosquito-borne diseases that have made the zoonotic or spillover jump from birds predominantly. So there are other mosquito-borne diseases in Colorado as well, but West Nile is the most pervasive and also the most deadly, but relatively speaking, West Nile isn't very deadly compared to yellow fever or, or malaria. If I had West Nile right now, would I know it? 90 to 95% of people who contract uh, the West Nile virus show no symptoms. So the vast majority of people wouldn't even ever know they had West Nile. Unfortunately, Well, that sounds good. Yes. Right? And then it's an inoculation strategy in a way uh, because then you can't get it again because it is a, is a virus. It's the less than 1% who get the encephalitis, uh, the swelling of the brain, and which can lead to, obviously, death in the worst-case scenario, but also paralysis of the limbs and other long-term repercussions. So overall, not as deadly as other mosquito-borne diseases, but for those few people, incredibly serious. Do repellents ever work? You know, mosquito killers like DDT, they have worked. And and there's no questioning that DDT was a remarkable wonder chemical in the eradication of mosquitoes. But had, of course, other important environmental effects. Absolutely. But then she adapted and became immune to DDT. Uh, And it no longer worked against mosquitoes. So whether it's bug sprays, whether it's vaccines against malaria or various defenses we've come up with for you know, our campaigns against both mosquito and her diseases, they're usually short-lived before the mosquito and the diseases adapt and overcome. You draw connections in this book between the mosquito and almost every war, I mean, dating back to the time of Alexander the Great, the rise of the Roman Empire. Were you surprised by how much mosquitoes had shaped human history? Once I delved further and deeper into the research and and went down the rabbit hole, so to speak, I I was shocked how there was really very few instances in in human history in Western civilization that the mosquito has not in some way, shape or form uh, influenced or impacted, obviously some more than others, but it was astounding this universal tiny animal the size and weight of a grapeseed has punched way above her weight class for millennia, essentially across our existence. You have not written a dry history book here. I mean, your writing is full of voice and some humor. I wonder if that was a choice you made. It was a conscious choice, and it was a struggle between a book that's full of death and destruction um, and despondency (laughs) And trying to make it humorous where 
It's difficult to contemplate 52 billion people dying of mosquito-borne disease since our origins as Homo sapiens being funny, but there is a dark humor that certainly runs through the book, and it for people who know me, it fits my personality. I, <laughs> I, I enjoy being humorous, and I, I try not to take things too seriously. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is historian Tim Weingard of Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. His new book is The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. This centuries-long battle with mosquitoes has also affected your family in a personal way. I'd like you to tell us about your great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, William, he joined the Canadian Army in 1915 at the age of 15 to fight in the First World War. Uh, He was wounded and gassed on the Western Front, returned to Canada and joined the Canadian Navy at 16, still underage, and served the remainder of the war on a minesweeper off the coast of West Central Africa, the ancestral birthplace of uh, mosquito-borne disease and and malaria. Um, And he, in 1918, he contracted typhoid influenza and vivax malaria all at the same time. That's three different uh, deadly diseases. Yes, and he was roughly 5'11 and 180 pounds, and when they were ready to throw him overboard, he weighed 97 pounds, and a a crew member saw him blink, and his life was saved. He spent a year uh, in hospital. They they thought he was dead. They thought he was dead. Uh, He was essentially in a coma, and and he had no pulse um, that they could find. Wow. Um, He spent a year in hospital. Uh, with recurrent malaria in Sierra Leone and then another year in England. And finally, uh, in 1920, was allowed to return to Canada. And on the boat ride home, he noticed a teenage girl being seasick over the railing. And being a a seasoned sailor like he was, he he cast a a few snide flirting remarks her way. And as my great-grandmother Hilda told me many years later, uh, in her own words, she gave him a tongue lashing. And the two quarreling lovers were happily married for 67 years. (laughs) I understand your wife's grandfather also had an experience with malaria. Yes, my wife is from Grand Junction and and her grandfather is from the the Western Slope. um, And he served in the Second World War um, and he died a year ago at 97. So he contracted malaria at Anzio for the first time. The Nazis reflooded the Pontine Marshes outside Rome and around Anzio on purpose as a biological weapon to give the advancing Allied soldiers malaria. Knowing that the mosquitoes would follow. Yes. And Rex Rainey received his first bout of malaria at Anzio. And then he liberated the Dachau concentration camp as well. And Dachau was the home of the Nazi tropical medicine, experimental medicine program. So they had been using interned Jewish prisoners as human test subjects, obviously involuntary, uh, with experimental mosquitoes and malaria and yellow fever. And he contracted malaria again at Dachau while liberating Dachau from one of these experimental mosquitoes. And he had no idea until I told him in the spring of 2017 how he contracted malaria both at Anzio in 1944 and then at Dachau in southern Germany. You were the one to explain this to him. Yes. He he knew he had had malaria twice, uh, but had no idea how he had contracted it. And I, I kind of pulled the curtain back for him and told him the historical parameters of how he contracted malaria in both cases. Would there be a way to turn the power of the mosquito against itself? As a biological weapon? No, as a way to combat the very things that mosquitoes expose us to. Yes. There's two ways I suppose we could 
rid the world of mosquito-borne disease, the first would be to rid the world of mosquitoes. Now, this isn't something that all people, politicians, scientists are in favor of, obviously. In order to do that, they would crisper males and release them into the wild, so to speak, to breed with females, and they would produce either infertile or only male offspring thereby eliminating the mosquito from the planet. It's so interesting. You're using CRISPR as a verb, and it's a kind of changing of a DNA sequence. Yeah, it's cutting and pasting genes at will, essentially. So we can choose which genes to take out and replace, um, not just in mosquitoes, but in humans or any creature for that matter. It's opening Pandora's box in a way. The other use of CRISPR with specifically with mosquitoes would be to CRISPR the mosquitoes themselves to make them capable of vectoring the diseases themselves. So you save the mosquitoes and get rid of the diseases themselves. Huh. Do you have a preferred route? (laughs) I would like to see the mosquitoes stay. I think... Perhaps after the audience reads the book, they'll have a a greater appreciation or at least understanding of this universal but quite remarkable and adaptable animal. So I would prefer to rid the world of mosquito-borne disease, not necessarily, you know, bringing the mosquito to extinction and and erecting a mosquito exhibit in the extinct wing of museums. (laughs) Are there benefits the mosquitoes provide? Could you find that? We don't know of any absolute benefits. They do pollinate plants. The males drink nectar, for example. They don't bite, but they do drink nectar. So they do pollinate plants, but not to a large extent when compared to bees or or Hmm. other insects. They don't eat waste from other animals as other insects do. They don't serve as an indispensable food source for any other species that we know of. So by and large, they don't serve, as far as we know, an ecological purpose unto itself. Mind you, throughout our history, they've acted as a Malthusian check against uncontrolled population growth. So perhaps that is their function. Mm. Uh, and now I'm not saying that... But that, their, their threat to us is inherently their benefit in nature. Perhaps. Some who argue that eradicating mosquito-borne disease would would be a danger uh, against uncontrolled human population growth. Um, And then obviously there's the other side that views it as, you know, the morally right thing to do to save lives. And I'm not, you asked me to pick sides, I'm not picking sides. (laughs) I did with CRISPR, I'm not going to on this argument. Yeah, that's some heady stuff. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Timothy Weingart is a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. He's written The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with NPR's Ari Shapiro. He hosts All Things Considered. He also sings with the band Pink Martini. They're coming to Red Rocks. So is there anything Ari can't do? Yes. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. In this world of legal weed in Colorado, what happens to the people who have convictions for marijuana from pre-legalization? 
Once they called me back, I would tell them that I do have a misdemeanor marijuana conviction and if they're able to hire me. And all of them said no. We talk expungement, sealing, and lots of other fun legal vocab words on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR about life after legalization. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They haven't lived in Colorado in almost 80 years. Now the gray wolf may be back. Wildlife officials are working to confirm two sightings in the northwest part of the state, one in Jackson County, another in Grand. Even though gray wolves have been functionally extinct in Colorado since around 1940, they thrive in nearby states. Wildlife managers have chosen to wait for the animals to come back on their own to Colorado. But Colette Adkins with the Center for Biological Diversity thinks they need human help. Just here and there, a wolf isn't a population. And really, we think the best way to ensure that Colorado once again has a wolf population is through a structured reintroduction program. Meanwhile, a hunter on the western slope is part of an effort to bring the wolves back by design to fight a deadly neurological disease in deer and elk. CPR's Sam Brash reports on this complex biological debate, which might end up on the ballot. Eric Washburn is a sportsman and conservationist in Steamboat Springs. And last year, he was hunting in northern Colorado when he shot a deer. A big, beautiful uh, mule deer buck. Probably one of the prettiest, healthiest-looking animals I've ever seen. But after sending the animal's head off for a mandatory Colorado Parks and Wildlife test, Washburn discovered the animal wasn't healthy. It had chronic wasting disease, a condition similar to mad cow that affects deer, elk, and moose. All of that beautiful meat then went into the into the garbage rather than feeding the family. It just showed me that, you know, you can't tell by looks which of these deer are diseased and which are not. Scientists first discovered CWD in Colorado in the 1960s, and it's since spread around the state and the globe. Washburn hopes wolves might be better than people at picking off those diseased animals. It's why he's helping organize a ballot initiative that would direct state wildlife officials to reintroduce the predators in Colorado. If they gather enough signatures, it could come before voters in 2020. I think wolves on the landscape would make those elk and deer herds much healthier um, with fairly trivial impacts on their overall population size. But Washburn's advocacy puts him at odds with many leading sportsmen's groups, which are adamantly against the ballot initiative. Mark Holyoke is with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. He says some elk and deer herds are already struggling, and adding wolves would only make things worse. He adds Colorado shouldn't become the first state where voters, and not wildlife managers, decide to restore the predators. Ballot box biology is a little dangerous. Um, We've got professionals that are on the landscape they know what's what and what's happening out there, and they need to be the ones who are, who are involved here. As for the claim that wolves could help fight CWD? People throw it out there. And just because you say something doesn't mean it's true. It needs to be shown. It needs to be proven. It needs to be that there's examples of it actually happening. And there aren't. Studies have shown that wolves do prey on weak or diseased animals, so it makes theoretical sense that they'd help cut down on CWD. But evidence of wolves actually reducing the prevalence of the disease in an area? That's never been documented. And other dynamics could come into play, says Matt Dunphy. He runs the Chronic Wasting Disease Alliance, which educates hunters and the public about the condition. So if wolves are added back in, how does that change herd dynamics? Do the animals move more? Do they move less? Do they bunch up more? Do they have more nose-to-nose contact? 
all of which could change how quickly the disease spreads. Add it all up, Dunphy says it's probably too early to say wolves guard against CWD. Probably the fairest answer is that we don't know exactly what it might do, but it might help. In the meantime, you'll likely see wolf advocates on sidewalks and in parking lots in the coming months asking for your signature. They need over 120000 by December to make the ballot. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Insects like the tiger beetle, thought to be extinct, have been found very much alive in Honduras, near what's been called the lost city of the monkey god. Scientists working for the Honduran government recently made the discovery. It also includes hundreds of living species of butterflies and rare plants, fish, and mammals. This is just the latest finding at a site full of intrigue. Colorado archaeologist Chris Fisher has been several times, and we spoke last fall about the lost city of the monkey god and other mysteries of the jungle. What has so captured people's imaginations about this place? I mean, like dating back to the 1500s. I think it's one of these legends, this lost city, this place where, uh, you know, where people disappeared into the jungle. and We don't really know what sort of happened with them. And I think more, more broadly, I think people are surprised that it's the 21st century, and yet we know so little about our world that there are these places that we can still enter where people haven't been for centuries. Yeah. So when we stepped off the helicopter and went into that jungle, it was possibly the only time in my life when I was going to be able to see this world that people really hadn't visited for, for hundreds of years. It was the only place, and I you know, worked globally, it was the only place I've ever been where there wasn't any plastic. Huh. In the intervening years... Uh, has your research turned up anything new about that ancient city in Honduras? So in 2015, we field verified the LIDAR results, the aerial survey, and everything that we saw in those three-dimensional LIDAR images was there on the ground, including a cache of objects that were probably left there when the city was abandoned uh, as a way of ritually closing that place. Huh. In 2016, we returned Uh, about six months later, with the support of the Honduran government and with a large grant from National Geographic to mitigate those objects so that they weren't in danger of being looted and then to stabilize the the rest of the deposit. But unfortunately, we were too late. In that six-month period, some of the objects have been looted. Their three-dimensional context, which is really, you know, what's the most important thing about those objects, was was, uh, lost for uh, about 10 of the objects. Well, because out it's, of about 400. it's out of about 400. It's really important to understand where those objects were that tells you something perhaps about why they were placed where they were. And what sorts of objects are we talking about that, as you say, might have been a farewell to this place? Well, so these are one way you show your eliteness in this part of the world in the prehistoric period was to be off the ground. So there are these ritual seats almost like thrones. Um, they're called locally matates, like manos and matates, like grinding stones that many of us might be familiar with from Mexico, but they're not, they're not grinding stones. They're, they're ritual seats. And those were arranged around several powerful objects in the, the form of a, a were-jaguar and possibly a dead ancestor. A were-jaguar? A were-jaguar, which is, um, if a werewolf isn't terrifying enough, <laughs> a were where jaguar is even more terrifying, which is half human, half jaguar. And it's actually a very common iconography in 
in Mesoamerica and Central America. It shows a person, a transformative person, you know, becoming a, a kind of a spirit animal. So it's half human, half jaguar, and, and some other iconography. And it was almost as if these seats were arranged around these objects for kind of the last final council meeting before the city was abandoned. My goodness, how you bring this to life when you talk about it. I want to say, though, that your latest research is in Mexico, a place called Angamuco. And at its height, do I have this right, it was Mexico's largest city, even more dense than Manhattan? Well, so, yeah, it was, it's, a, it's a very large site. It covers about 26 square kilometers. We, of course, know so little about it that even though, you know, we've excavated there for three years, we've done intensive survey for two years, we have this three-dimensional scan of the entire site so we can estimate how many building foundations are on it. So it's an incredibly large site, but we don't know whether it was all occupied at one time. And it's going to take decades of research to to unravel that. So what, you know, one of the things that I've been saying is that when Angamuco was occupied, it had about as many building foundations as there are on the island of Manhattan. But of course, on Manhattan, those building foundations are skyscrapers. And at Angamuco, they're the houses of ordinary people. Mm-hmm. You know, they might be a couple meters by a couple meters on a side. So, you know, and, and of course, the, the maximum population of Angamuco, if everything was occupied at one time, which it probably wasn't, it's about 200,000 people. On the island of Manhattan, you have upwards of, you know, of 1.5 or 1.6 million people. You know, the idea is to just get people thinking about urbanism and what that actually means and what, you know, prehistoric urbanism means versus modern urbanism and, um, you know, what, what an amazing process it actually is. And Angamuco was not well known until just recently, right? Yeah, so, you know, performing traditional archaeological survey, which is basically a technology that goes back to World War One. you have a, a group of trained researchers walk across the landscape in a line, in a transect, record everything that they find. Over the course of doing that, in 2009, we discovered Angamuco, which is the city that is on a, geologically speaking, very recent lava flow. It's on top of a lava flow. And, you know, we, we started surveying this place, walking across. I had a group of graduate students. And one day they were like, Chris, we need, we got to find an edge. You know, we need to know what we're dealing with. So I grabbed a, a couple of cliff bars and a bottle of water, and I walked across this landform, and I walked for about two kilometers. And I got to the other side, and I was like, oh, there are buildings all the way across. Oh, this is a city. And then I was like, oh, no, it's a city. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the rest of my life's work. We we have just about a minute left, sure. Chris, Chris Fisher. Um you mentioned LIDAR earlier, this a technology that really allows you to get a fuller picture of these ancient lost places. Um, will you help me understand how you'd like to use it to understand climate change, just briefly? Right. So LIDAR is a comprehensive three-dimensional record of the Earth's surface and everything on it. And it's typically accomplished from some kind of aerial platform, a drone, a helicopter, a plane. We practice what one of my colleagues calls a digital deforestation. We remove the vegetation so we can see the Earth's surface. Our Earth is changing dramatically, and we have a very limited window in, in, in which to record the Earth as it is now for future generations so that they can understand it scientifically. So here at CSU, we're promoting 
the acquisition of massive LIDAR records, starting first in threatened areas, to permanently record the Earth as it exists now, so that people, you know, a century from now, can go back, look through these records with tools that are much more sophisticated than we have now, and, you know, help them understand how the Earth is changing and, and what's actually causing it, and importantly, how to stop it. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Chris Fisher is an archaeologist at Colorado State University and an explorer of ancient civilizations. We spoke last fall. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Guess who's singing? Would you believe it's the same person who says this? This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. When Ari Shapiro isn't hosting one of the most listened-to radio news programs in the country, he somehow finds time to sing with Pink Martini, the self-described little orchestra out of Portland, Oregon. The band puts a modern twist on jazz, classical, and traditional pop with songs in 25 languages, French to Armenian. Shapiro is on four of the band's albums, and they perform together Saturday at Belly Up Aspen and Sunday at Red Rocks with the Colorado Symphony and Mary Chapin Carpenter. And Ari Shapiro, welcome to the program. Ah, you blew my cover. Now everybody knows. (laughs) Are people surprised that you are both lending your vocal talents to NPR and to these shows? Now that I've been singing with Pink Martini for about 10 years, people are a lot less surprised than they used to be, but they're still inevitably, after any show that I do with Pink Martini, at least one or two tweets that say, I had no idea. <laughs> so that's always fun. I mean, it's nice to live a double life, right? Maybe I can't be a superhero and Clark Kent, but I can be a radio host and, and sing with Pink Martini. How long have you been singing? Uh, well, I, you know, when I was a kid, I did musical theater and choirs and things like that. And I took voice lessons. And when I was in college, I sang a lot. But I finished college, got into journalism and sort of gave up music until in 2008. So by that point, I, I graduated from college in 2000. Uh, and it was eight years later that Thomas Lauderdale, the band's uh, pianist, pianist band right? leader, after a late night sing-along at my house, suggested I record a song for the band's next album. And I thought that would never happen. And then the next thing I knew, I was in Portland, Oregon, in the studio with Pink Martini, this band that I'd been a fan of since I was a kid in Portland. And I recorded a song on the album. And then Thomas said, well, why don't we find a time for you to perform live with us? We're going to be at the Hollywood Bowl in September in front of 18,000 people. Come (laughs) sing with us there. So that was the first place I ever sang with a band live. And that was 10 years ago. And as you said, four albums later uh, and a couple of world tours, I'm still joining them whenever I can. It was a soft launch at the Hollywood Bowl. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) People were very forgiving. 
Why don't we hear that first track? My dear Maria, I'm here to see you. Won't you please, please open the door? I brought you flowers, been waiting hours, can't stand it anymore. So here's what happened when you were napping. I just went out for a snack. I was feeling famished and then I vanished. But now I'm back. Now I'm back. consider yourself a singer? Like, is that a label that you use? I guess so. I, 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 <laughs> that didn't sound very confident. <laughs> I, I feel like if I were to own that title, I would have to be a little bit more responsible about training my voice as an instrument and taking good care of it. And, and, um, and I am not that responsible. I love singing with Pink Martini. And I don't think I know as much or perform as well as the people who own the title singer. But just by definition, the fact that I sing with Pink Martini at venues like the Hollywood Bowl and Red Rocks Amphitheater, yes, I guess I I have to own that I am a singer. Hmm. In what ways are you vocally irresponsible? Like, how, how could you take better care of your voice? Well, I could not drink. Um, <laughs> I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but I could do daily vocal exercises. I Sometimes months go by when I don't sing with Pink Martini. And in those months, maybe I'll have a sing-along around my piano, but otherwise, generally, I'm not singing in those months. Two quintessential Colorado questions for you. You mentioned Red Rocks. Uh, yeah. First of all, have you, have you ever performed at Red Rocks? I never have. And actually... I mean, one of the great things about being able to join Pink Martini on tour is they perform in these legendary venues all over the world. And so I've been able to experience being on stage in some of the places that I've always dreamed about, like Carnegie Hall, you know, Royal Albert Hall in London. Hmm. And I've always dreamed about performing at Red Rocks. I think it is one of the most beautiful, legendary places in the world. And I saw that the band was performing there this summer and that the performance was on a weekend when I would be able to get away without having to take time away from all things considered. And so I asked if I could join them and they said, we would love to have you. And the second question, which is related to Red Rocks, are you prepared to sing at altitude? Because one thing that Colorado audiences are really used to is touring bands come in and the first thing the vocalist says is, whew, the air is thin up here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I I run a lot, so I feel like I have, you know, good heart-lung capacity. And last summer, I did some shows with Pink Martini in the Pacific Northwest where it was not at altitude, but the forest fires had made the air quality worse than any city in the world. And we managed to get through that, feeling by the end like I had smoked a pack of cigarettes, but we managed to get through that. So hopefully I will be up for the altitude challenge. You... Is there anything you would recommend I do to prepare? <laughs> um... Well, other than coming a few days early to acclimate... uh, No can do. I'm hosting All Things Considered on the Friday and then again on the Monday after my two shows in Colorado. Well, my advice to you is to hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Okay, Okay, will do. You know, there are these stories of acts that have had oxygen tanks just off stage, but you don't strike me as needing that in like your... In your writer, you know, with your I would never be so M&M presumptuous demands. as to say, I don't need oxygen tanks, but I've never <laughs> had one before. I've never sung in Colorado before, so I, I don't know who's to say. Uh, you yourself have performed songs in six different languages with Pink Martini, including a You've recent... done your research. Very good. Sure. Uh, including a recent song in Arabic. Finis <laughs> 
Do you speak any of the foreign languages in which you sing? And if you don't, uh, if you sing in a language that you aren't, you know, fluent in, how do you acquire that and sing it convincingly? I speak a little bit of French and a little bit of Hebrew, both of which I have sung on Pink Martini albums, but I don't speak Armenian or Arabic or any of the other languages that I've sung in on the albums. Um, and then there are other languages that I've performed in with Pink Martini that I've not recorded in from like Hindi to Greek, et cetera, et cetera. And the key is to have somebody who is a native speaker coach me in how to pronounce the words. And I go over and over and over and over it with them until they are comfortable that I have it right. So, for example, when we were recording Finis Midi, I actually had three uh, language coaches in the studio with me. And they were all of different Arab descent. <laughs> um, but we had decided that the song was going to be in the Egyptian dialect, which sounds very different from the Lebanese dialect, but Egyptian pop music is huge in the Arab world. And so Iyad Qasim, who wrote the lyrics, sort of wanted this to be a nod to the influence of Egyptian music on Arab pop, which which is so popular globally right now. Wait, is Ari Shapiro huge in Egypt? That's not what you're telling us. No. I, I am not aware of this okay. ever having been played in Egypt, but I would be delighted to know if it were. Yeah. Does, I imagine this playing in some bazaar somewhere in, in Cairo, and that, that would make me very happy. Yeah, it's a lovely image. Uh, does performing on air or on stage ever make you nervous? It makes me more nervous on stage than on air because the thing about being on air is that it's just you and the microphone. I mean, as you know, no matter how many people might be listening at any given time, it just feels like you're having a conversation with one other person. And when you're on stage, you feel and hear in real time the reaction from the people who you were sharing that moment with. And that makes it so different from radio because it is an experience that will never happen again that is only shared by the people who are in that place and at that time. My mother is always asking people to, you know, video performances and post them on YouTube. But I really like people to keep their phones in their pockets and experience what's happening 
in the way that it will never happen again with the people who will never all be in that same room again. Um, so to loop back around to your question, there are nerves, but it's an exciting kind of nerves. It's an exhilarating kind of nervousness. It's not a, a, a paralyzing nervousness. I like this idea, though, that you want to preserve the ephemeral nature, though, of a performance. Um, in 2016, you debuted your solo cabaret show, Homeward, uh, yeah. in- inspired by your experiences reporting from war zones around the world and yeah. focused on the universal power of music. It just occurs to me that you're a successful journalist, a thoughtful and a talented performer. I, I want to know, Ari Shapiro, what you are bad at. I can't bake a pie. I can't throw a football. I mean, there is a long list of things that I'm really bad at. Um, those two might be at the top of, of of the list for me right now. You can't make a pie. No, I'm I just like the crust doesn't turn out. The fruit like makes the crust all soggy or the crust is like a concrete rock, you know. I go for cobblers instead. It's a little bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> Deconstructed pie. Uh, thanks exactly. so thanks so much for talking to us and enjoy especially that performance at Red Rocks. I can't wait. I'm so excited for it. Thank you for having me and um thanks to Colorado for coming out to the shows. A pesar de todo, yo te quiero siempre, y mi anhelo es verte junto a mí, besarte otra vez. Yo te quiero siempre, aunque sé que no me Ari Shapiro is co-host of NPR's All Things Considered and an occasional guest vocalist for Pink Martini. He and the band perform Saturday at Belly Up Aspen and Sunday at Red Rocks. That's our show for today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Moore.